Hey, everybody, and welcome to another episode of the Conquering Columbus podcast. Uh, that was a little weird on how I how I introed that. I don't think I've ever said it quite that way before, Josh. Yep. I mean, you're really spicing things up now. Yeah, so we're feeling, keeping, keeping feeling the listeners on their toes. Spicy today. It's, uh, well, now we are two weeks. When, when you guys are listening to this, we'll be two weeks into the new year. And I uh, hope you all are having a great start, whatever you're doing. And uh, I know that uh, within the sales world, it's always about getting off to a hot start, getting ahead of your quotas. And uh, that's kind of what we're focused on at my day job at FMX. Josh, what are you guys doing over Path? You know, we are just trying to create the future of manufacturing. So pretty, pretty easy feat. That's like the, you know, like, okay, your marketing team feeds you that every day, huh? No, that's what I feed. Did Tim, did Tim come up with that? <laughs> yeah, that is, that is Tim's, uh, Tim's key slogan. Yeah. Well, today on the show, actually, I'm really excited for this episode. I, I had a lot of fun on this conversation. Um, and I guess first question, Josh, you ever been to Piata? Yeah, I've been to Piata once or twice. And I think my, my passion for all the food at Piata, particularly Piata sticks really shine through in this episode. So mm-hmm. I'm happy that we got to talk about that and, uh, spend some time discussing how amazing those things are. And just Matt's story in general, from everything that he's done and, and how he's grown um, with the brand and how he started at Bravo and, and grew with them and where he's at today and what the goals are for the future was really exciting to to discuss and learn about. And not to mention just him as a person. It's interesting. I mean, I, I haven't sat down with a lot of chefs and I haven't talked with a lot of chefs and people with backgrounds in culinary, but you would never expect that to be Matt's trait just from the way that he's such an extroverted people person. Not to say that the stereotype is that people who are you no know, way. You just assume all chefs are just, you know, complete introverts. Don't talk to anybody. No, I'm sure. I'm sure plenty are extroverts. And, and but I mean, they're, they're slaving away in the back and you're about to get grilled by chefs on the internet. They're <laughs> going to be all over you in the comments. My name is Mike Minucci. No, no. They, they're, they're grinding in the back and you don't see them as the head face, personality or the face of the, the restaurant. Right? And, yeah. he, and, and Matt has just a really strong way of carrying a conversation. And he was just Overall, really enjoyable to talk to. So I think uh, everybody he kept making fun of me about Cincinnati. You guys will hear it later in this episode, but just he kept bringing it up, and you know he fit in well with you guys. And I'm sure Josh and Matt are real good friends now. But uh, the uh, the Cincinnati insults really stick to me. That honestly might be the main reason I like him so much. I, most people say that if you have a conversation with someone and you ask them about themselves the entire time, they mm-hmm. walk away liking you a lot more. I think when I have a conversation <laughs> with someone and they make fun of you as much as possible, I walk away liking them a lot. I saw that going like uh, that joke was coming from like a mile away, but uh, I think that's a good place to, uh, I guess we haven't told anybody who the guest is at this point. It's, it's Matthew Harding and he is the chief menu innovation officer at uh, Piata. And apparently that title also entails a whole lot more than just working the menu. And you guys will learn more about that here on the episode, but I hope you enjoy this interview and we'll be right back. This is Conquering Columbus. Hey there, Conquerors. Jenny Brittenbauer of Jenny's Splendid Ice Creams. I'm truly never comfortable. When I'm comfortable, I'm bored. I just have to keep going. Only when you're a little bit scared are you in a place where you're about to learn something. We're explorers, and explorers are making discoveries because they are going places where people haven't before. Urban Meyer. There's one guarantee in this world, and that's hard work will be rewarded. And hard work, you have to embrace discomfort. I love how you said that, live uncomfortably. Donato's Jane Abel. We have a umbrella idea of agape 
Appetite Capitalism, which is about doing business and doing it with love and giving back to the community. And I believe in our products, but more importantly, I believe in our people. Bellatania CEO, Doug Oldman. There's this genuine pride for things that were born and raised in Columbus. And that's awesome. At the same time, there's this beautiful Midwest humility. People don't necessarily care about who gets credit. Cameron Mitchell of Cameron Mitchell Restaurants. One of our goals is to be better today than we were yesterday and better tomorrow than we are today. And that goal stays the same 24-7-365. This is Conquering Columbus. Hey, everybody. Welcome to another episode of the Conquering Columbus podcast. As usual, I am one of your co-hosts, Mike. We're here in the booth with Josh and Tim. How are you guys doing? Pretty good, man. This like get work done before the holidays thing is uh, we're get, we're piling a lot. Piling Josh, on. Josh can probably attest. <laughs> yeah, but. yeah. The end of the, the end of your grind is is we're feeling it yeah. for sure. Well, wow, that's uh, that's no fun. I did find out today, however, there's like a seventy percent chance that we have a white Christmas. Oh, hey, that's not bad. I'm going to be down in Cincinnati. I'm wondering if I'm going to get a sleep Christmas, but. Um, Maybe. Yeah. But uh, so Cincinnati the, popular for sleet. Why, why would you not get snow? sleet sleet? Cause it's a little further South. It might be just warm enough to turn it into sleet. Dude. It's like an hour South. Yeah. You're not, you're, the weather changes. I don't know when's south. the last it's, time you looked where Cincinnati is on a map, but it's I don't know not, if you know, he's from San Diego. Yeah, have you ever it's, been? It's a little bit further right. from Florida than maybe what you, <laughs> didn't take long to get there. than what you think. Look, if you go down, look, if you check the temperature in Cincinnati today, you would see that it was a couple degrees warmer. And if we're right on the edge, you could get sleet instead of snow, but we are completely sidetracked. Just, just, already. Stop. I'm just, going back. Just, nope. just take sunscreen. No, just we're be cutting careful. it off. We're cutting it off. Take some sunscreen. We got to introduce our guests <laughs> going here. on a beach vacation to Cincinnati. God, I hope that you're okay while you're down there. Guys, we have to introduce our guests at some point. So I'm going to cut off the making fun of Mike to introduce uh, Mr. Matt Harding. And Matt is the Senior VP of Culinary and Menu Innovation at Piata. And prior to joining the Piata team, he was the corporate executive chef at Brio. And throughout his career, he spent time as an executive chef at a variety of restaurants, including Lindy's and Brio. And his cooking career has brought him all over the world to places like San Francisco, New York, DC, even Bavaria, Germany. But uh, today he calls Columbus home. Really excited to have Matthew on today to talk about his career and everything Piata has going on. Welcome to Conquering Columbus, Matt. Thanks a lot, gentlemen. First of all, I think it's absolutely fine to uh, snicker with my title. It's probably the longest one we have. Uh, it was actually made up, kind of like a lot of titles are made up around uh, around the office. So we just thought the more the more things at the end of the name, the more important. So okay, well, so what is it? So what does it really mean then? The VP of Culinary Innovation and Menu Innovation. Sorry. Yeah. So it it uh, it means uh, you know I was one of the last people standing. So <laughs> um, we're a really lean and mean team. We were you know the company started in 2010, uh, and it started after Chris Chris Duty, um, the founder. Um, he was also the founder of Bravo Brio Restaurant Group. Uh, grew that to around 60 restaurants. He left when it kind of went into transition and then eventually it went public. So I stayed on until about 120 restaurants and, uh, and then I left. So, um, but you know, we've come to work together after a period I've known Chris since 1994, 2015 joined up again with him. He called me out of the blue and, uh, we've been, we've been running and gunning pretty tight. The story of Piata again, started in 2010. And uh, Chris had been uh, newly retired. And his wife, the, as the story goes, uh, told him, you need to go do something because uh, sitting, standing around the house and, and, you know, is great, but you're still a young guy. You've got fight left in you. And so he created Piata. So Piata started 
was really started from a trip uh, that they took to uh, that he took to Italy uh, and saw, saw this piadina, this this bread, this peasant type bread being made in the Emilia Romagna region, which is in the uh, west coast of Italy. So he came back and uh, he said, "Okay, I'm going to do this. I'm going to I'm going to kind of model it after a Chipotle style, where you can go down and choose your toppings." And um, it's taken off ever since, and we grew pretty fast. In 2017, it was uh, we kind of made a change. We put our put our brakes on a little bit and reevaluated the business. Um, and that's when we really looked at how many people we needed to run the organization, and it came down to a lot less people than we had. So unfortunately, uh, we a lot of people, a lot of great people with the organization went on to other things. You know, we've got people who used to work with us working at Shake Shack. And um, so they're really influencing the rest of the food service industry. And I feel kind of honored to have worked with them. But so it comes from the fact that we've just got a lot of hats. So I oversee culinary, which is my my sweet spot. And I've been doing food. This will be my 41st year actually cooking in a professional kitchen. I uh, started when I was 13 before the labor laws. So it was fine. And um, so now I also oversee technology and marketing, which is a real, real kind of stretch for me. So, so basically senior VP of culinary and menu innovation sounds a lot better than VP of culinary IT and marketing. That's a lot of, well, I'm also working on real estate too, as well. So okay, we were, so we were just in, kind we were of Pittsburgh last week and, uh, we've actually got, um, we got some sites grown for, for this next coming year. So when, did, when did you officially launch Piata? Uh, Piata, what year? Piata started in 2010. So okay. it really started in 2009. And then they did a lot of uh, dry runs where they would invite people into the office and they would taste the food. And, and so the first store that's on Lane Avenue was the first store. And if you look at it, the graphics, the design, the layout is, the, is pretty much exact to the last one that we built um, in Texas. So, you know, it was really fully formed out of, out of the womb, so to speak. Yeah, I remember, I couldn't remember what year it was, but I remember when it launched the little Vespa the yeah. logo, we tried it out. I'm a big pasta guy. And, it, okay. and it, we always described it as like the Chipotle for Italian. Yeah. And I think the first like six months to a year, it was like every day. It was like yeah. Josh and the, that bagel joint. Yeah. Like I would literally eat it all the time. <laughs> yeah. So that's, yeah, that's pretty cool. To- we used to chow down on, on Piata on the wrestling team at Ohio State. Right. It was always a good post-match meal or something like yeah. that and was the like piata sticks. Go-to. Oh, mm-hmm. I have no idea what you put in those piata sticks, but uh, they're one of the things I've definitely, I've recently had to go gluten-free and piata sticks. Those are like on my list of things that I'm like, going to miss those. What's funny about piata is that you, you guys make the locks joke. So we had uh, the founder of locks on here recently and yes. we talked about, I, I eat there three, four times. It's, it's actually a problem. You say three or four times a day? No, no, no. A week. A week I, yeah. If I ate right. three or four times a day, I would, if I could afford it. It's very <laughs> expensive though. But before my bagel kick, I was on a piata kick. And I imagine you guys could never go out and say like, hey, look, that's probably not healthy to eat that many of this type of thing of our food. I mean, why would you? It's just not a good thing. But you would tell me because I would go there and eat like three or four piata sticks and that's all I would get. Sure. You would probably say that's that's probably not a great long term. It's, it's, it's incredibly good for us. Yeah, it's right. very good <laughs> yeah, for you no, guys. Seriously. Not so good for but they're so addicting. Mike's right. They're they're incredibly good. They're great. Uh, you know, and before the, when they originally started out with the Piata sticks, mm-hmm. they had a secret ingredient in them that we've taken out since, since the beginning. And they're, they're more healthy now. There was maybe a little bit of mayonnaise in there. 
Oh man. I do love mayonnaise. Man, like mayo goes with a lot of stuff. So next time I go in there, I'm going to ask him for some mayonnaise so on the side. Can you give me that? I don't know. <laughs> so I'm, like, I'm kicking it back get, to the original. Oh, the, can I get that secret ingredient? The creamy Parmesan dressing, when you dip them in the creamy Parmesan dressing. I mean, that's homemade, right? It's beautiful. It's got, we do cracked black pepper and we do Parmesan Reggiano and we do fresh parsley in it. It's a really like pumped up ranch style, the creamy Parmesan. And that's just amazing with mm-hmm. the stick. That's 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 fantastic. Man, I've not had dinner yet, and I'm starving. <laughs> oh, yeah. <laughs> Our sponsor is Waveform Music Group. Andy and Carlin have been working with us to take the production of Conquering Columbus to the next level, and Josh and I cannot be happier with the results. Outside of podcast production, Andy and Carlin are experts in songwriting, music production, and sonic branding for companies of all sizes. And to learn more about them, head to their website, createwaveforms.com. That is createwaveforms.com, and tell them Conquering Columbus sent you. We're getting a little off track, though, and getting distracted by food. So let's take a step back, Matt, and talk a little bit about how you got into cooking and how you got into, I mean, you went to culinary school, right? Yeah. I went to the Culinary Institute of America. Mm-hmm. So I grew up in, uh, on the East coast in Massachusetts. Okay. And, uh, you know, I think, uh, you know, one of the earliest memories that I ever had was that food became comfort for me, you know, and I can remember I grew up in this kind of rural area, a couple miles from a little small bucolic town in Massachusetts, Southeastern Massachusetts. And, you know, we had these basements that had these sort of like metal doors that you go down to the basement, bulkhead doors. And uh, the fan for the oven, this is a funny story. The fan from the oven would blow out. And if my mom was cooking something, I would like know what was cooking. And then I would, you know, the whole sensory, you start to get excited about what you're smelling. And then you go in, you kind of maybe wash your hands and and then you eat. And it, it was mm-hmm. it was the full experience. So I can always remember being mesmerized um, by aromas. And for me, I think there was one thing that's incredibly clear that food is tied to memory oh, and yeah. it's food. It's tied to smell. You get that smell. Like it's, if you, if you go by, there's a couple of restaurants here in Columbus that do the wood burning grills mm-hmm. and you go by there and you're like me, me, you know, you're like, whatever it is, right. You can, you can smell that smell and you're instantly transported back to either your favorite steak or the one time that you were sober in Napa Valley or wherever you were, that you had that experience. Um, so for me, that's what started it. Uh, it started with the, the smell, the aroma, the comfort. And I just found someone very, very early on in my career who mentored me. And, you know, a great mentor is someone who sees something in you before you see it yourself. And uh, he just really, he was a, he was a five foot, 260 pounds, South Boston, like real tough guy, chef, sarcastic as, as all could be, which I've tried desperately for the rest of my life to work out of. But he was just a brilliant guy. And, you know, he was talking about things in the, in the culinary world um, that were classic, that uh, not a lot of people touched on. And he was one of those guys, if you weren't interested in knowing something, no problem. Here do this. But if you asked a question, that's when the door opened. And so my, my early career, probably for the first four years that I was cooking, uh, became about, became about trying to ask the right questions to unlock what was in his head because he was, he was a certified, uh, master chef, a really smart guy. And so it, it came about how I could get whatever he had in his head into mine. It's funny. 
Well, okay, Josh has a question. I'll let Josh go. Well, it's not so much a question. I mean, yeah, I'll transition into a question. Massachusetts, <laughs> though, and I don't know a lot about where Massachusetts is located, to be honest. I think it's close to Cincinnati, probably, but it's, I, I do know that's on like remember, the East wait, Coast. Wait, wait, remember earlier when you were like, uh, you know, I have trouble with the, the East versus West. Josh doesn't even know where Italy is on the map. So Italy is, it's uh, actually in Northern Kentucky. Which is my favorite, Facts. which yeah. is my favorite place to visit. I go to it Italy never gets all the snow. time. It's on the internet now, so it must be true. It's way too south. for It's probably a huge sleet city though. Is yeah, yeah. Big sleet cities. Yeah. <laughs> so so <laughs> the, what I'm trying to get as the East coast cities, I mean, I think sure. any part of, of the U S probably has their hotbeds for food, like the South. And when you talk about fried foods and things, but I have noticed that a lot of people that I've begun to, or, or started to meet as I grown older from, you know, what are those Connecticut, Massachusetts, they have a, a very big food culture there, it seems like. So it makes sense that growing up in that, that, that stuck with you. So as you progressed and you started to develop your love for food even deeper, how did things start to unfold for you? Did you ever consider anything outside of culinary school or is that the only route that you were going to go? Well, to go back and, and, and say that question about where you're, where you're from, right? There's a, there's a food writer and his, his name is Calvin Trillin. And he said in a book one time, he goes, if you don't believe that the best cheeseburger ever made was from your hometown, you're a sissy. And I don't know what he meant and what context he meant that in. Uh, but I think it was an, in, you know, like if you don't think the best food is where you're from, then, you know, there's something wrong with you. Right. Uh, but I, growing up in the East, again, two miles from the water, we used to go quahogging and, you know, where it's where you walk around in the sand with your feet and you're digging up quahogs with a pair of socks on and raking them. Yeah. What is a quahog? It's, it's like a giant clam. It's oh. this really inedible, like if you were to, to eat it once it's steamed, but if you chop it and you mix it with some breading and, you know, your parents drink a lot when they make them, it's a lot of fun. So we make these things called stuffed quahogs. And there were a lot of, there were a lot of like just maritime things that we would do that we considered pretty normal, but were sort of things, foods that weren't eaten. So, and then the other thing is uh, you would ask, did I want to do anything else? And I, I, no. <laughs> so my dad growing up, my dad had an auto body shop and I was forced to work. Actually, I wasn't forced. I was probably pawned off there. Lost a bet with my mom. I used to go during the summers and it was hot and it was sweaty and I'd come home smelling like something and it was just miserable, loud. And I thought, well, I don't want to do this. So I worked in the kitchen, which is kind of like the same thing. So it's the environment, right? And, and what I think what drew me to the kitchen um, was, was um, you know, all the things that, that young people enjoy, um, freedom and success. And, and you know, when you're cooking um, as, a, as just a cook, right? If, if you get into a, a, even a, even any restaurant situation, you are a hero or an absolute troll every two to three minutes when you put up a dish. So either that dish is on point and no one can refute it, or you're, you're just an absolute slug, not good person. And for someone who craves like that sort of instant gratification, it's sort of like, you know, getting hooked on candy or getting hooked on something. You just crave that more. You want the attention of being successful. You want to get, you know, you want to get to, to be the person who works the, the station on the busy nights or that you work the holidays and you wear all of those things, which normal people would think are dumb. Why do you want to work on a holiday? You wear that as a badge. Why would you want to work on the weekends, Friday, Saturday, Saturday, Sunday nights? You wear it as a badge. So it's the allure of being successful at it and, and having other people kind of look at you as, uh, well, he's the, he's the person who works it on the weekend. You know, there's something about 
what you just said that kind of resonates with me. And it's that, so I work in sales and a lot of people think they hear a salesperson, they think, well, it's all about, you know, they're trying to make money. They're trying like, but really some of the most fulfilling moments are when you get an email from someone who you sold a product to and they say, Hey, this really helped me out yeah. and it's successful, right? A chef, right? I don't think you get any more direct, what's the word I'm looking for? Fulfillment and, and seeing that smile on that person's face when they eat that dish. Like that's gotta be one of the most direct results, the one of the most direct outcomes that you can see as a chef. So the fact that, you know, you get to spend time on the weekend. Yeah, I'm working on the weekend, but you're, you're, if you're doing your job right, you're making people happy. Yeah. And that's got to be pretty fulfilling. There was one time I had opened a restaurant in San Francisco and it was a big ticket restaurant. And um, the the designer who had done it, uh, who designed the restaurant was was known for spending a lot of money and he spent a lot of money. And um, it was it was done by the great hotelier Bill Kempton when he was still alive. It was his first freestanding restaurant. And we got reviewed in the San Francisco Chronicle, and that's back when newspapers were were huge, right? If you got a bad review, and and our review came out, and it was it was mixed, right? And um, there were a lot of good things, but I tell you what, it was the most, it was probably one of the most heart crushing moments in my career, because you know there was so much blood, sweat, and effort that had went into every single shift, and and so many right decisions, and you know that's that's the part you know, that when you do something passionately, the downside of that is that when you get feedback that doesn't fit what you think you're doing, it's devastating. And how do you handle that? That's That was probably one of the tougher things that I had to deal with. We're going to take a quick break here to thank one of our sponsors, the Burlett Family Foundation. The Burlett Family Foundation is committed to serving as a trusted partner and resource to organizations striving to improve our community here in Columbus. All right, let's get back to the episode. You talk about like 360 peer assessments or things like that within a professional environment. I mean, how, how difficult those are and people know do them once a year. Yeah. And most people, they, I mean, you know, you find tremendous value in them, but it, it is, you know, mostly heart-wrenching to most people. But I find like your authenticity around talking about your motivations and the fact that, that that direct satisfaction feeds you so much and working on the holidays is a badge. You know, I think a lot of people, <clears throat> even people that we've had on the show, they might feel that way, but it's hard to kind of admit deep down that those are the kind of things that drive you, you know, because so people tend to look at it and say, like, getting fulfillment externally, you should feel guilty for it and things. So I, I appreciate the authenticity. It's cool to hear that that's really what's driven you. And so when you finished your your culinary experience and finished up education, sure. what was your first role and how did things start to snowball for you? Yeah, so I, I had taken a job um, in uh, Palm Desert in California. Hey, Palm Desert. I know yeah. Palm Desert. Big sleet town. Not a big sleet town. In they fact, have, the opposite of a sleet town. It's pretty much sun. Just desert. No, they have a lot of snow there. Hey, well, if you go. <laughs> um, so, uh, but I decided to follow a girl to uh, Washington, D.C. So, uh, you know how those stories go, right? At the Intercontinental, the hotel had just uh, reopened the Willard four doors down from the White House. And it was during the 80s, you know, so kind of an, uh, you know, an era where D.C. was still you know, had, was in transition, but it was a lot of fun. It was a great experience. And I, and I worked at uh, the fine dining restaurant at the Intercontinental there. And uh, I worked for two really great people. One, one guy who uh, went on to, both of them went on to teach at the New England Culinary Institute. And um, <laughs> both two characters, I think um, when I look at the people who've helped influence me in my career, they've always been the characters. They've always been the people with high ethics for food and sometimes questionable morals with the last drink and getting home before 2 a.m. 
at least early in my career. The um in in uh you know one of them one of the guys the sous chefs he he was a he was a ex marine, and uh, I'll never forget this line. He goes when when he was dealing with somebody that was a real challenge, hmm. shall we say. He would look straight in the eye and give him this crazy Marine look. And he'd go, you know why I like working with you? Because you make me a better manager. And I was sure he was saying something else. Yeah. I imagine what he do. My dad was a Marine. I know that look. <laughs> yeah. And then the other guy, Ben Savello, he was uh, an amazingly talented chef. And we would just be, we would get slaughtered in the restaurant. We would had a lot of politicians come in and it was a small restaurant, but it was really busy and and at the end of the night, he'd make us clean, clean the walls or reboil all the stocks or retrim all the baby vegetables at 11 o'clock. And, you know, that kind of discipline led us in that restaurant, you know, to not say, okay, my shift is done. Your shift isn't done till everything's done. And the diversity of people that I worked with there is probably, I had seen some diversity with people in the culinary in New York. But in Washington, D.C., I worked, we worked with uh, Segu Dayite. We used to call him the Prince of Senegal. And uh, I worked with uh, Rad Matmati, um, and he was from Tunis, Tunisia. Um, and, you know, we work with people all through the states uh, and, and just really a, a real basket of people. First time that uh, I had been in that worldly kind of experience, especially from sheltered from, from Massachusetts. How long does that last until eventually Piata comes into the picture or even the, the Brio experience starting before Piata? Well, gosh, that was in the 80s, right? And then I moved uh, I moved to San Francisco, 89, caught the earthquake, was there for that. That was fun. And spent the following eight years kind of in and out of San Francisco, working in restaurants. I had my first sojourn with traveling at that point. When I grew up in the East, I didn't travel at all. My parents, you know, they always provided, but we didn't, we didn't do a lot of traveling. So, you know, went to... 26 countries while I was living in San Francisco. Literally, I gave up my apartment, was sleeping on my friend's Tucker's floor. And, you know, people were, were helping. I sold everything I had except for like two duffel bags. So to kind of go back a little bit, when I was in D.C., I met this girl from Columbus. So the plot thickens. Now yeah. what's yeah. going on. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And so as the story goes, and this is her version of the story. Mm-hmm. Her version of the story is I asked her out. Their version is always the, the correct one, right? I don't, if, if I don't, I'm not sure theory. about that, but <laughs> she said that I asked her out. And then she said that she doesn't go out with anybody she works with. But then two weeks later, she's going out with a guy from the day crew. Wow. Now, if you've ever worked in a restaurant, this Who is, is that? the highest insult possible. We call him Bad Richard. Bad Richard. Don't ask about that. <laughs> He's actually got a name at my house. His name is Bad Richard. <laughs> so I move out to San Francisco. My hair is short. Mm-hmm. Her hair is long when she's living in, in DC. Well, she moves out six years later after she breaks up with Bad Richard. Mm-hmm. My hair is like down to here, her hair's short, and she, we became best friends. So she was the actual last best friend I've ever had. And uh, moving around in the industry a lot, when you move from city to city, you're working nights, weekends, holidays. The friend groups that you get are pretty intense. They're pretty, they're pretty solid. But as you transition away, because of your work-life balance, because uh, there isn't a lot of balance, you tend to fall out of fall out of friendship with people. And I think when you look at what you see a lot of chefs who who have committed suicide over the last several years, they've got a pretty high incidence of it. And I had a good mentor uh, commit suicide. it's It's because of that separation. you You kind of feel slightly adrift if you're if you're in the zone. It's hard to it's hard to stay grounded to people. So San Francisco, 
got married, and then got married here in Columbus at the conservatory, and then uh, jetted off to Germany. We took a job um, in Bavaria at a golf center. Hmm. It was a California cuisine restaurant in Bavaria. And it was, uh, here's a pro tip. If you're going to take a job, probably want to go there first. Okay. No matter how far, may have been worth it. But I'm glad we did, right? Because um, the people were absolutely fabulous. Uh, loved, loved, loved the people in Germany and loved the, uh, loved the experience. And you it's, speak German now? I did. I uh, did a little bit. And, bit. and I was the, I'm the speaker. Uh, my wife, who was with me, is the one who understands the words. And she's, I'm like, what the heck are they saying? And she's like, they're saying this, and then I'll speak to them. And then so uh, moved back to Columbus and was looking for a job. And this was the time when the uh, Bexley Monk was open. So I don't know if you guys are familiar with that. There was a restaurant with Jack Corey, who's, who's still a chef in town, and, and the Giffords, great, great guys, Eddie, Eddie Miller. And uh, I had decided I wasn't going to interview with, with Chris and his brother Rick for, you know, any jobs because I had heard that they were really uh, tough to work for. And I had moved from California and I lived in Germany and, and it was really about a really solid working environment, good benefits. And, and I heard that that wasn't necessarily quite so. So uh, I got a call from Rick, which is Chris's brother. We sat down, we had lunch. They, they invited me into Lindy's and uh, that was the beginning of the journey of 20 years there. So Started at Lindy's, and after five years, I was done. I had uh, that's a very physically demanding restaurant. Um, it's not as busy as it was. Uh, it's, it's not. It was not as busy then as it is now. So they've been on an amazing trajectory, and they've done a great job there. But uh, then uh, uh, one of the Chris came in. He says, "Hey, we're going to open this restaurant." And this is a true story. When Easton was opening. They offered the Brio spot to a competitor in town, and they, they turned it down for a second. They wanted a, the restaurant space on the second floor. So there was no, there was no restaurant, local restaurant that was going to go there. And uh, the guy who was doing the development, Yarp Steiner, said, hey, you know, came, to, came to Rick and Chris and said, hey, I like Brio, but I'm sorry, I like Bravo, but Bravo's not fancy enough. So they said, okay, well, we have a concept we have this concept that we're going to do. And they, and they, they pitched a concept they didn't have. And mm. so they got the deal done and cause that's how they did it. And then, uh, and then I remember the conversation was, okay, guys, we're going to do this, but he goes, I don't want anybody working on it until like 12 weeks before we open, which by the way is a huge red flag. So I just want to point that out. So then, yeah, that whole summer of 99 was a blur. And that was the first Brio. And that, that actually changed the entire trajectory of the company and caused a lot of good things to happen for a lot of people. So that was how the company, that was really, that was really the, if you can point to, you know, a couple of moments in the company's history on how that company got to be so big, that would have been one of them. And you're talking about the ideation and creation of that concept? Yeah. And the successful Taming of the Beast. It was, we thought it was going to do $100,000 a week. It was doing two hundred and fifty thousand a week. And, and for us in that company, it was, you know, cheesecake at, I think at their height, some of them have got some restaurants that do $20 million a year, but you know, in, in the height of that, it was, it was a pretty busy restaurant for most people working in it. Hey everybody. We're going to take a quick break here to talk about one of our sponsors, One Columbus. 
You know, it really couldn't be cooler to have a sponsor and a partner like One Columbus. They are directly in alignment with everything we stand for and everything we're looking to promote here at Conquering Columbus. I mean, they just want to bring the most competitive companies to the area and make everything about the city and the region just one of the greatest places to live in the United States and in the world for that matter. Yeah, they're like the ultimate Columbus hype man. They're trying to bring new businesses here, show them what our strengths are, but also address some of the weaknesses and say, like, this is how we could get better. So for us, we're excited to help promote their goal and help tell the story with them on board. Absolutely. And if you guys want to learn more about One Columbus, check them out at columbusregion.com. That's columbusregion.com. So when you sat down with the Melindys, you talked about, you know, you walked into that, at least it sounded like having really no no aspiration to join the team and, and you left and decided to join the team. What was it during that conversation that really resonated with you? Because I could align with some things, right? There were there were some things that they talked about that they wanted to do and, and, and improve the quality of, um, and I could align with that. And, you know, I remember, remember telling my wife at the time, so we, we could do a year, we can do a year, this, we can do a year, right? Um, and, and, you know, it was just that constant growth. And I think, I think for me, you know, one of the things in my career, um, I have the innate ability to know that I'm full of crap half the time and that the things that I run from are the things that are always going to pursue me. It doesn't matter where the hell I go. So if I'm being in, in, in petulant pain in the butt, it doesn't matter if I'm here, San Francisco, if I'm further south, like South America, like Cincinnati, I'm going right, to be, right. a, I'm going to be an impetulant pain in the butt there. My problems are me just as much as they're anybody else's. Right. Yeah. So I think that's helped me kind of work through my career. And it's not to say I haven't caused a lot of pain for people. I was pretty good at that at one point. That's a, that's a great thing to understand though. I think, I think it takes a lot of people a long time to realize that, you know, when you, when you see something, oh, like you hear, you know, oh, I would have made it if it was this, or, you know, my boss sucked or, you know, this, there's always an excuse, like the victim. And then once you realize like the common denominator of that problem was you, that it sucks. Like you said at first, but uncle Rico, they should have put you in. The coach only put you <laughs> yeah, in, man. But once you figure Could've it out, the States, you, know, right. you can actually start to fix things and grow and then like kind of produce a much better life for yourself. Yeah. So, I mean, it's super hard to look at, I mean, there's, if there's anything that's more difficult than looking at yourself and trying to admit flaws, that is, I've yet to find it. Um, it's hard to sit down and really, and it's easy to like admit a mistake, but to take ownership of that mistake and say, hey, that's tied to a significant flaw in my character or the way that I go about doing my life. That's the hard part. And then working on fixing it, just being like, right. oh yeah, I do that. You're like, okay, yeah, we know. Now, yeah, don't, yeah. maybe don't do that anymore. Right. That's the hard part is to realize, you know, it's, this is this is how I am. And has then, someone ever told you something so true it resonated you to the core and it shook you? Oh, yeah, for sure. Those are the type of people you need to be around. Mm -hmm. And I had- um, I try to be that for people, but it makes me lose friends. I'm yeah. just kidding. <laughs> well, yeah, I appreciate people like that. People like have the, to be open to hearing Brutus, it, right? Yeah, exactly. So I and your delivery a, too. I mean, not to, get, not to interrupt yeah. you, but- you can say something true as a, like a dick, or you could say something true out of love that, you know, will actually help change versus just being mean. And that's, that's a, that's a delicate. There was uh, a guy who passed away a couple of years. His name was Norm Shubb, uh, business people. And Norm had this way of saying stuff that was, if you hadn't had the Shubb experience, you, you missed out. But, uh, you know, I sat down one time and, and he, you know, he just kind of laid it out for me and it was so true. And, you know, it's very rare that you get that kind of feedback that is not devastating, but leaves you in a place you can actually do something about. So, you know, in my, in my daily, in my day job, when I say something, I always look for the feedback 
And I don't always look for the feedback, but I look for the meaning behind the feedback. So the snicker, the eye roll, the the joke, the double thought, what kind of conversation it brings up. Because sometimes asking that follow-up question is worth, you know, saying the first stupid thing because you got to get the conversation out somehow. So Brio starts to gain traction. And then how does the scaling efforts look? And what role did you play throughout that scaling? Was was the growth wild for the next five, 10 years? Wherever the yeah, the scaling is? was incredibly painful, but amazing at the same time. So I opened the first Brio in July of 1999. The duties, Chris and Rick signed the next deal. I think it was with Frank Cass in Orlando three weeks later. We got building right away. So it happened, uh, it happened, I think we opened in February. I personally opened the next eight Brio as the, as the, the person who went down and trained the teams. And then the scale up was, was all human capital. I mean, that's the way you open a restaurant and infuse culture is by having humans train other humans. It's not easy to do, right? And that's why a lot of companies don't grow, right? But one of the things that, that we had, and I look back on that particular group of people, all completely aligned. And even in the arguments, even in the, even the disagreements, even in everything, we were aligned on the purpose, which was the guest. You know, it was, the answer is yes, you know, but that was it. Okay, yeah, absolutely. How can we help you, you know? I remember one time I was, we, we had opened uh, Buckhead in Atlanta and, and they're a, a very sophisticated crowd down there. One of the chefs said, hey, this table, they'd like to speak to you about the risotto because we did this risotto sampler, which was like, blow your brains out. Strategy, so hard to execute. And um, so I go out there and the woman like dresses me down for like five minutes on, um, she's been to Italy and she knows about risotto and this isn't risotto. And, and, um, and so I'm, you know, doing my best not to cry at the table and, uh, and being polite. Right. And so I go back and I'm, and, and then the chef, he's just laughing at me. He's like, yeah, I knew that was going to happen. So, you know, it's kind of feedback you get sometimes. What I want to know is... How entitled do you have to be to feel like, man, I didn't like that food. You know what I want to do? I want to dress, dress down the chef. I, I deserve to be able to yell at the chef. That, listen, if, if you're out there and you do something like that, stop it. Don't do that. I was, what I thought was, what, what, what does she hope was going to happen? Right. Be like, you're right. I'll, let me go get you some from middle. You know what I mean? Like, like I was totally making was it best, wrong, but yeah. now that you know the right way, let me make it for you. Right, right. Yeah. Yeah. Um, sorry. Sidetracked. So after all that scaling- yeah. Right. After all that growth, you're like, and you just got done telling me that, hey, scaling was difficult. It's all, it sounds like a lot of stress. It was incredibly difficult, really, really fulfilling. And I realized for me, that was my sweet spot, right? I want to be in a company that grows because that sort of, I think I've got the handlebars. Maybe they're out of my grip. Maybe I should slow down a little bit. I think I'm okay. Maybe I'm going to crash. That to me is like the excitement that you get in the part that makes work not work, mm-hmm. right? You know, you're in a di- you go into uh, a, a different place, a different town. You're dealing with people building restaurants and you're working on design and then you're working on food. All of those things make for a not boring day, you know? So you can, you can actually chew up a lot of years without getting tired of making the same widget, which I think is the goal, right? You said you started opening them in 99, Right. The first, the, the first Bravo opened in 93 and the first Brio opened in 1999. 
And then you said you opened the next eight, like you physically went there. Yeah. How long would you be in that location? Three weeks. Okay. So, and you were you were married at this point too. Yeah. Right? Yeah. And my wife had just had twins. So I was going to ask, how difficult was the uh, that was, was that part of the process? Good on it was, her. <laughs> it was well. My wife is a former chef, yeah. so she knows how to you know carry a heavy workload, and she's been an amazing partner in the whole thing. But uh, I remember when we were in Orlando again opening. We were a mile and a quarter from the restaurant, the hotel, and we didn't have money to rent a car. So we would get up at five, five or five thirty in the morning, walk to work, and at eleven or eleven thirty when we get done at night, we'd walk the mile and it's like a typical story, right? Yeah. Mm-hmm. In the snow. Uh, the snow. No, 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 there's actually no snow in Florida right <laughs> Go now. Figure. Just sleep. Next yeah. week. Right. It's not quite close to Cincinnati. <laughs> okay. We've so, gone we've gone on the Cincinnati thing enough. I'm gonna put my foot down no, here, guys. Never ending. Was that was that like your um like the company couldn't they couldn't afford it or was that just like No, the, we were the, we were lean and mean. I mean, gotcha. you know, our 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 modus operandi was if it if it didn't affect the guests, we weren't gonna spend money on it. Gotcha. Because if you're making two fifty a week and you're not getting me a, a rental car. I feel like yeah, I'm not I, working I, for you I, very long. I think we were, I mean, we guys, we're all in at that yeah, point. You know, I remember, cool. I remember I shared a room with, uh, with the director of training at the time and, and he smoked. Ooh, so, uh, I so. smoked for that, those three weeks too. <laughs> at least you smelled like it. Yeah. We're going to take a quick break to hear from one of our sponsors. Working from home is full of challenges. Online school from home can be even tougher. Don't add to the frustrations with no hot water for showers or laundry or cooking. Clog drains in your kitchens or bathrooms. You have enough going on at home right now. You know who to call. Let the pros at the Waterworks handle all your plumbing and drain cleaning. Call 614-25-DRAIN today. So jumping into Piata, you know, they talk to me about how things started to wind down at Brio, if they did it all, and then and then how the jump to Piata started. Yeah, so um, I was I did twenty years at at Brio and uh, at Bravo, and um, you know, it just came time. It, it just came time to go. You know, the the urge inside me was was so I felt like I had done a lot of things there, and as a company grows, your sphere of influence tends to get smaller. And I didn't want to be the ceremonial guy that they whipped out for the, you know, the openings. And I still enjoyed being part of the business. And so I did what I thought was one of the craziest things at 46 years old. I left an organization that I could have stayed at. And I could have stayed probably another five or six years, but I couldn't stay. I couldn't stay, right? And um, and it was probably, I remember going and talking to the CEO at the time, and it was so incredibly sad because I had... I went to work every day, never thinking I was going to leave. And then I, I took a, I took a job in LA. I moved to Los Angeles for a very, very busy kind of swanky restaurant in downtown LA. And that taught me another great life lesson that, you know, I was there for four months and uh, it clear, clearly was not going to work out. And then I found myself looking for a job after, after a short stint, after 20 years and it's it's probably difficult. It was difficult when you when you have a resume that has twenty years in a place, and then a short stint. Um, you know, everybody says, "Well, it just wasn't a right fit." Uh, but I think the also the other thing is is that people want people with updated skills. And if you work for an organization a long time, and this is what they won't tell you, is that you know they think, "Well, did he get lazy? Was it you know like not like the organization was growing?" And so there there can be a double edged sword with that. 
So then I was in LA and, uh, you know, full disclosure, I was a Northern California guy. I lived in San Francisco and traveled all around the weather on Thanksgiving. Sold. Sold. I'm just, it was, there was no doubt it wasn't going to snow like Cincinnati. So, and then I came, I came back to Columbus and I was, I was looking, right? So, you know, you go back on the search and you start calling up all your numbers and all of a sudden Chris calls me out of the blue and he starts putting on the old, Hey, what are you doing? Mm. Long time. No see. And I've, I'd always gotten along great with Chris. One of the things about Chris is that, and I won't get all gushy on him, but he's a real human. He's got a heart and that comes through big with him. And, uh, you know, we began talking and, and um, kind of one thing led to another. And that's when we started the journey. And when I started with Piata, we had 17 restaurants. We quickly went up to 40. So over a span of uh, two and a half years, we grew a lot. And then, then we stopped the bus and a bunch of people got off and really not a lot of people got on. And we really looked at our business from the, the viewpoint of, is it sustainable and can it grow on its own? Versus with a, with a cash influx or getting an investor or, you know, trying to go public or whatever, whatever mechanism we were going to do for, for capital. And, uh, you know, we had decided that we needed to fix the things internally. We need to harden our teams to be excellent with execution, to be vigilant with capital. And that journey took us, you know, about a year and simultaneously we looked at the guest experience because we, you know, started as kind of like the Chipotle of Italian, right? Which is, which is great because all of a sudden people can wrap their heads around your concept. Well, what we were finding out is that people were doing pasta uh, with sausage and strawberries and lettuce. And, um, you know, then they were putting creamy Parmesan on top. And while you may, you may like all of those ingredients, they probably don't go together very well or they're not memorable. Um, so about the time that I had gotten there, uh, Chris had been kicking around doing a chef menu, which is curated items. And they had had a lot of discussions about it and we, we rolled it out uh, right before I got there. And I, I think that's made all the difference because if you're a first time user to the brand, if you're a first time guest, I don't, maybe user is a bad word, although if you're addicted to your piata stick, it's okay. Mm-hmm. Um, for the first time guest, you know, you're, you're assured of a good, of a good time, right? So you, you like the carbonara and if you have it and you, you absolutely hate spinach, then fine, modify it that way. But I think it's that as we've grown restaurants, so from the first batch of restaurants, which is like, you know, zero to 15, zero to 17, and then there's like 17 to 40, they actually order different foods, so the older restaurants, the ones in Columbus, they have a higher incidence of what we call create your own. So there's more guests who go in and they get their their thing. But in the newer restaurants, they order the menu items. And the menu items for us are easier to execute. They usually have less complicated things that go together. Like, you know, we're not adding all these flavors that don't, don't match. And we're guaranteeing a higher flavor profile. So higher guest satisfaction. So I think the chef menu... You know, it's currently at nine, item, nine items. We're, we're looking to expand it this year. So I think that was really was really the big thing for us. That's helped the, the execution of the brand and I think guests to like it a lot. So we worked on we worked on chef menu items. And then the other issue we had, uh, and I was standing at Lane Avenue one day and I saw this, this mother 
uh, this mom and she was in her, she was in her fifties and her son was like maybe 18 or 20. And they were sort of like huddling in front of the menu, sort of like holding each other together against the tyranny that was trying to figure out how to order as a first time guest. So what we did is we kind of tore the whole thing down and redid the guest experience in the first 35 feet. So from the time you walk in the door till the time you get to the, the, the stone, we redid that experience. We made things redundant. All the menus look the same. And so by the time you get up there, you know what you want to order. And we've alleviated all that st- a lot of the stress that's there. Now, there always is a little bit of learning curve. I remember if you guys remember the first time you went to Chipotle, you probably didn't quite exact know how, how to do that. Uh, but, you know, I think we lessened the curve. Absolutely. That makes, that makes complete sense. Well, the follow-up question is, you know, we've gotten to today and what's the goals from here? What do you see things going for Piata next three, five years? What's the long-term vision? We're going to move to Cincinnati. Okay. Uh, you got a Cincinnati location. I've been there. So actually, so we're growing in Cincinnati. We've, we've got two, uh, we've got two letters of intent out. So the next, the three-year goal is six, 10, 12. So we feel like we need to get 60 restaurants, expand our reach, it's probably, it's probably two new markets. So we're going to, we're focusing on the existing markets that we have for this year. Okay. So we're going to do Cincinnati, Pittsburgh, Cleveland, and Dallas. We've got some stuff on paper. That's for, for sure at this point. And then we're looking to break two markets over the next two years. So, and, and we feel like when we go into a market, like if we did either Charlotte or the triad, we, we have to cluster, you have mm-hmm. to go, you know, for, for um, distribution and for oversight you have to go in, in a calendar year or within 12 months with three to five restaurants. So you can really kind of fruit out manpower and labor and, 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 and really make an impact in a, in a city. So just continuing to grow. I think one of the things that, you know, that we'll always do as a challenge is every time we find money, anytime we get a little bit bigger and we get a little bit better buying power, we tend to upgrade what we're buying. So like we increased our, the quality a couple of years ago of our pasta, we increased the quality of our sausage, we're increasing the quality of our chicken. So it's not necessarily about trying to, to um, gain more, uh, you know, gain more profitability out of the stores, because I think the race is on for quality. It's always been on. And with the, with the collapse of casual dining, I think you're going to see more demand on casual dining quality food in fast casual. It's an interesting concept because I mean, I would, I would assume, and I'm not super in depth on the restaurant industry in particular, but I would assume that as you're scaling, you're, you're trying to push down the prices of your goods that you're, that you're putting into your foods and trying to increase margins because you got to continue to supply this massive ecosystem that you're building as you're going along the way. But maybe it's, it's behalf of your guys' success with Bravo and Brio. You, you guys have taken the complete opposite approach. It should work that way, but it doesn't. What you end up doing is shedding guests. Because, you know, remember everybody goes, well, the Coke isn't the same as it used to be, you know, or my, you know, my favorite ice cream bar, the chocolate isn't as thick. And over time, people will, will get that. It's the kind of like the 5% rule. Like if you, if you work on a project and you tweak it 5% every week, right. someone comes back after a year, they're not going to realize, you know, this is a huge gap. And for, for, you, for you who worked on it every week, it's just the last tweak. What about your your personal role? I mean, it's evolved a lot in the organization. You started from working in the business to what it seems like it's transitioned to more strategy and working on a lot of elements of the business. Yeah. How have you felt about that from just your own personal skills standpoint? And and are you are you mo- more motivated now than ever? I'm more scared than ever. 
So, you know, I've given that some thought and I'm incredibly grateful for the success that we've had uh, in the past year. I think that, you know, as you've seen a lot of collapse in the food service industry, one of the one of the segments that that has been able to do well, if if we you had it together was fast casual. And, and you know, we've had a good year. We've had a really good year. And, you know, my biggest fear, the thing that I'm most uncomfortable about is sustaining success. Right. So that's the thing that that makes me question the size of the of the tortelloni. You know, we did it. We just did a stuffed pasta limited time offer and it, and it went really well. It was great. You know, everybody loved it. I didn't it, know about that. Well, I'm sorry about that. Didn't market properly. That's my that's my stuff. Right I there. know. I'm telling you, we, we had a lot of ads out there. <laughs> um, so and we're thinking about doing it with tortelloni. But for next year, for the fall, because it's a great kind of warm dish. You can work on your winter bod. You can be fulfilled. But we 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 futzed around with, um, we futzed around with the tortelloni sizes, like three or four different tortelloni sizes, because, you know, we're always eating it and we're going, is this the right experience? Is that the right experience? And, and to your point, even with the marketing, right? You know, a lot of times um, we've got a couple of great, amazing, creative people in the marketing department, but they get sick of seeing things after a while. They're like, oh, we've covered that base, and I'm like, guys. You haven't covered the base yet. Mm-hmm. So really the biggest, the the biggest thing that I look forward to, the thing that drives me is sustaining the success, sustaining the desire for guests to eat and want to eat at Piata and, and keep things current. You can't stay stagnant today, but if you change too much, you change into something that guests don't recognize you for. You know, the consumers are excellent at telling you what they like but they're really not fantastic of telling you what they're going to like in the future. So you got to kind of meet them. Absolutely. And Matt, you you mentioned a word and that word was uncomfortable. And uh, I think that's a good cue to uh, move towards our last question of the show. I centered around the theme here on conquering Columbus and that is live uncomfortably. And if I tell you too much about why we chose that particular phrase, what do you think of when you hear it? How's it apply to your life and career? I think it it fits really right now. We're we're entering a stage where you know we're beginning beginning to grow again after not growing for two years, and you know that takes uh, certain disciplines that we haven't used in the company in a while. You know the training teams have been wound down; those have to be wound up. So the uncomfortableness is is what will happen in the calendar year twenty one, twenty two, and twenty three, and to maintain a, a semblance of excellence, right? To keep the excellence there. Um, that what you're known for. So we want our people to be excited about what's coming. We want them to feel that we've given them all the right information that they need to be successful. And we want to give them, make sure we give them the right commander's intent so they can go out and attack the hell out of it. So, you know, what makes me uncomfortable is the fact that there are some things that I'm doing currently right now that I have not a lot of background in. You know, my director of technology, and he's amazing, by the way, um, he's, he's one of the smartest guys in the room and, and he's not only that, he's great with marketing too. He really understands consumers and guests, but just managing those teams of people that you don't have expertise in, right? I can sort of fake it till I make it in culinary sometimes because I've, I've got the background or I know the shortcut. Well, you know, when you're on a call with something, you know, you know, software as a service and, and you're talking about, and, and I'm like, you know, I'm shooting uh, the director of technology 
the text, like what the hell is this guy talking about? And they're the experts, right? So, so I try to leverage what they know and listen to what they need and try to give them everything that they need. And in return, I just ask for a lot. Well, Matt, that makes a lot of sense. And I think that's a great answer. We really appreciate you taking the time to share your story. Talk with us today. It's been a lot of fun. Thank you. I appreciate it. And Conquerors, thanks so much for tuning in. If you want to hear more interviews like that, uh, the one we just had with Matt, then uh, you can hit that subscribe button. We interview different leaders from around Columbus every day, every day. Well, every week, every day would be a lot. Um, so hit that subscribe button. Check us out on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter. You can follow us along there and we'll uh, post every time we release an episode. But uh, again, really appreciate all your support. We'll talk to you next week. Bye.